Welcome back, comrades. I'm so happy you're still with us. Great work getting all the way through chapter one. And I know we can do these next two chapters together as well. Again, these first three chapters are considered much harder than all of the other chapters, but they lay a really important foundation for what's coming. This episode covers the short second chapter and the longer and more complex third chapter on money. Some of it might seem a little tedious, but at first Marx is laying out the framework of capitalism according to its bourgeois theorists. Remember, he wanted to deconstruct capitalism on its own terms. But we also get our first mentions of crises that are inherent in capitalism once commodities and labor take the form of value, which is represented by money. We'll cover three different functions that money plays and the contradictions within and between them. And along the way, Comrade Derek will give some contemporary examples to highlight the ongoing relevance of Marx's argument here, even though so much has changed with money and finance in the last 200 years, and especially in the last 50 and even the last 10. So before we get started, there are a couple terms I wanted to define that will come up soon. The first, which we heard a bit in the last episode, is contradiction. We can probably think about what that word means in its normal usage in our lives, but let's get to the way that Marx uses it. One good definition is from Professor David Harvey, who says, quote, a contradiction is when two seemingly opposed forces are simultaneously present within a particular situation, an entity, a process, or event. Let's look at what is the biggest contradiction within capitalism itself, and that's the contradiction between labor and capital. Labor and capital are opposites because they have contradictory drives. Labor seeks to decrease the rate of exploitation by collectively bargaining for higher wages and so on. Capital, on the other hand, seeks to always increase the rate of exploitation. So labor and capital are actually driven by opposite and antagonistic drives. This concept is at the core of the Marxist theory of development, also known as dialectical materialism. We understand that contradictions are always in confrontation with each other, and that they can only be resolved through the transformation into something totally new. And finally, you'll hear reference to the concept of base and superstructure. If dialectics of dialectical materialism refers to contradictions, the materialism refers to how everything around us is shaped at its root by the political economy, the way production and ownership is organized. That is the base. For us, that base is imperialism and monopoly capitalism. In Marx's time, the base was industrial capitalism that was emerging from the base of feudalism. What we call the superstructure are the institutions that grow directly out of that base. The religious institutions, education, work environment, family structure, media, legal system, and more. For example, courts and laws under capitalism enforce property rights, business rights, etc. because the base of that superstructure is capitalism. Whereas in socialist countries, the courts enforce the rights of workers over private enterprise. So I hope that helps. Let's now get into this episode on money. 
you're beginning to hear alarm about a second mortgage shock. Last month alone, more than 70,000 families lost their homes. Stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. The coronavirus pushing unemployment to its highest level since the Great Depression. American billionaires have gained a trillion dollars in wealth just this year. Millions of Americans are receiving food stamp benefits for the first time. Would you swap working for a company in favor of living in a communist country? A surprising number of millennials in the US would do precisely that. Welcome back, comrades. I hope that the reading wasn't too difficult and that this episode clears up any confusion you have or at the very least advances your understanding of the chapters that we read for today, which are chapters two and three and bring us to the conclusion of part one of the book. So chapter two is largely a transition chapter that's setting the stage for the chapter on money. In the last chapter, we learned that the commodity is a contradictory unity of exchange value and use value and that value, which encompasses both, is defined as socially necessary labor time. Value as such needs to have a material expression, which at first is the equivalent commodity and later is the general commodity and finally the money commodity. Money therefore not only internalizes the contradictions inherent in the commodity, it also represents value at the same time as it covers over value as a social relation of labor. In chapter two, Marx begins by setting up the conditions of capitalist exchange on their own terms, thereby assuming a certain ideal functioning of the market. We'll see how some of the contradictions with the value of a commodity and its realization and price play out in both chapters. First, Marx says that it's crucial that the owners of commodities must both consent freely to the exchange and they have to recognize each other as owners of their respective commodities. Marx says this is a juridical relation, in other words, a legal relation, which is, quote, a relation between two wills and is but the reflex of the real economic relations between the two. It is this economic relation that determines the subject matter comprised in each such juridical act, end quote. And that's on the first page of the chapter. So here we see that the legal relation is required for capitalism, but that the legal relation itself is a reflex of the economic system. A reflex is something that happens really without intention. So this means that the superstructure emerges from the base, so to speak, while the legal superstructure allows the economic base to do its work. Marx then notes on page 60 online, 89 International, and 179 in Penguin that, quote, In the course of our investigation, we shall find, in general, that the characters who appear on the economic stage are but the personifications of the economic relations that exist between them, end quote. So again, Marx isn't dealing with individuals, but with systemic relations. Now, some have taken this to an extreme to argue that, for example, when workers have a 401k, they're acting as capitalists. And personally, I think this is a bit of a stretch and not really helpful for our analysis or organizing. In high-tech, low-pay, Sam Marcy noted that when workers had their pensions moved into stocks, they became contradictorily invested in their own exploitation. And I think that's a more helpful way to understand it. It's not as if we're acting as capitalists, but it's rather that capitalism has changed our role as workers by transforming part of our wages into stocks which are tied to the ups and downs of the market and our own exploitation. 
it's more accurate to say that capitalism has changed the conditions of the class rather than that workers suddenly become capitalists when they invest. When looking at exchange, the owner of commodity A has no use for it. It's been produced for exchange, but it has to have a use value for others, which makes it an exchange value and therefore a commodity. So the commodity is not a use value, but an exchange value for the seller, but it's a use value for the buyer. But it's only through the act of exchange that they become values. Hence, as Marx says in the next paragraph, quote, Commodities must be realized as values before they can be realized as use values, end quote. But that's not all. He continues. On the other hand, they must show that they are use values before they can be realized as values, end quote. So the commodity needs to be produced as a use value, as something that's socially useful. But it isn't until we exchange it that we actually know whether it's a use value or not. There's a contradiction here and, as Marx says, an opportunity for crisis. The crisis here would result from commodities being produced but then having no value on the market because they've fallen out of use. So in other words, by the time they get to the market, there's no longer a social need or use for them. For example, this could happen if by the time it gets to the market, another commodity has been produced that has superseded it. He then moves on to money on page 61 online, 90 in International Publishers, and 181 in Penguin. He writes, quote, Money is a crystal formed of necessity in the course of the exchanges, whereby different products of labor are practically equated to one another and thus by practice converted into commodities. The historical progress and extension of exchange develops the contrast latent in commodities between use value and value. So what is this contradiction? It's the contradiction between the qualitative and heterogeneous aspects of use value and the quantitative and homogeneous aspects of exchange value. It's also because, again, the commodity has to be produced for an exchange value, which requires it to have a usefulness to society. But if the product can't be sold, then it becomes literally a non-value. Importantly, all of this goes on behind the backs or above the heads of producers and those involved in exchange. It's out of any one individual's control what society deems to be useful or not. So why does money crystallize out of exchange? We can see this in direct barter and as barter expands. So as commodities being produced to be sold proliferate, there are increasing numbers and it becomes increasingly difficult to determine the value of a commodity through commodities B, C, D, and so on. Moreover, there are limits to what commodities I can purchase and the limits of direct barter need to be overcome by universal form of value, by money. He notes that nomadic peoples may have been the first to require money because their commodities came into contact with so many communities, which barter exchange limits. The exchange of commodities begins between different communities. Yet, as he observes, we're still on the same pages here, as soon as products once become commodities in the external relations of a community, they also, by reaction, become so in its internal intercourse, end quote. So we see commodity exchange and the seeds of capitalism expanding. And the reason why the exchange of commodities begins between different communities is because each community develops its own surplus, which it then exchanges with other communities. 
Then on page 62 online, 92 international and 182 penguin, quote, in the same proportion as exchange bursts local bonds and the value of commodities accordingly expands more and more into the material embodiment of human labor as such, in that proportion does the money form become transferred to commodities which are by nature fitted to perform the social function of a universal equivalent, end quote. And here he's talking about gold and silver. But I point this out because this is the first appearance of the bursting of local bonds, which we'll see developed throughout the book because capitalism is by nature an expansive system that transcends time and space and finally creates a global system. Globalization, then, isn't something that begins in the late 20th century. It's something that Marx saw happening around him at the time. In the Grandressa, he wrote something to the effect of the world market is given in the very concept of capital itself. So gold and silver have two use values. One use value is related to the inherent properties within each, and the other is their function as money. Gold and silver as commodities in themselves express value relatively through other commodities, and like all value, this is determined by the socially necessary labor time required for its production. So one question that always comes up concerns Marx's use of gold as the money commodity because today that is no longer the case. It's fiat money or state-backed money. Now, for a period of time, money was tied to gold, but with the end of the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1971, the U.S. dollar broke its relationship with gold and became, in a sense, free-floating. And when a currency is backed by a state, it's known as fiat money. So some argue that money, as a result, no longer has a material base like gold or silver. But that's not really true. First, money is still a representation of value. It's based on socially necessary labor time, which is certainly material. What the break from the gold standard allowed was more flexibility for the manipulation of currency and also an avenue for economic domination across the world. In this sense, it's also tied to military and political power. The hegemony of the U.S. meant that the U.S. dollar was the standard and most desirable form of money. This in turn means that the U.S. has greater control over other countries. When the U.S. sanctions a country, for example, it weakens that country's ability to trade by depriving them of access to U.S. dollars. But gold is still relevant, of course, because it's still used as money. But the U.S. can't control its global flow as much, but it still tries to. For example, in July 2020, Britain denied Venezuela's ability to access its gold reserves, assessed at about $1 billion, stored in British banks at the request of the U.S. government. This is also why the rise of other countries, especially China, threatens U.S. imperialism. It provides another avenue for trade, loans, and development in the global south that doesn't rely on the U.S. dollar. And because China operates according to a different system than the U.S. does, the conditions of trade, loans, and development are, of course, radically different from those of the U.S. There's definitely a lot more to all of this, but I think that's sufficient for contextualizing the change from gold to fiat currency. In the last paragraph of the chapter, he notes that, quote, Our relations to each other in production assume a material character independent of their control and conscious individual action, end quote. So we're the subject of forces that we don't control individually. We are, he notes, atomic. 
And so he's ending this chapter like he ends the first. There's an appearance of independence and atomization where we're all individuals, self-interested and so on on the market, but that's really false. We aren't self-determining, we aren't atomic. Instead, we're subject to and products of forces beyond our control. And that brings us to the end of chapter two on exchange. Okay, Derek, I have to ask, why is Marx defining the different kinds of value so meticulously? And why does he spend so much time talking about what is quantitative versus qualitative? Yeah, this part seems a bit laborious. And, you know, Marx once said, I think, that nobody has ever written or studied about money as much in the lack of so much money, right? Marx here, though, he was up against all the political economists at the time. And so he's showing us that money doesn't allow commodities to circulate. The circulation of commodities allows money to arise. And one of his real contributions here was to explain the difference between price and value. It's another way he's demystifying capitalism for us, showing us that the reality between what there is and what we see. So we see that something costs $10, but that doesn't tell us or explain anything about why it costs $10, right? We can't see value, but we can see price. And he's harping on the quantitative and qualitative because they're such central contradictions of capitalism, right? So use values, again, are qualitative in that they're singular, they're consumed, and they're different for everyone. And we really see this when we get into surplus value in work, because the use value of labor power, how we actually use our bodies and minds and lives at work, is the real stuff of class struggle. But exchange value is quantitative because a dollar is a dollar. So the capitalist says, look, I paid for your labor with this money, so I should get to do with it what I want. But we say, yeah, you paid for it, but what you paid for is my life, right? And so I should have a say in how it's used. And that's really a contradiction between use value and exchange value. And really, these are two different class viewpoints, right? I mean, so workers, we're concerned with use values. We care about what we eat, how much we eat, where we live, what kind of conditions we live in, what kind of leisure activities we can pursue, and so on, right? I mean, capitalists don't really care about any of this. All they care about is exchange value. And it doesn't matter what use value they're producing as long as it's going to return an augmented exchange value, right? More money for them in the end. So chapter three is money or the circulation of commodities. And in this chapter, Marx explores the different functions of money, of which he lists two, but there's another one that comes at the end. So we'll move through this section by section. The first function of money is as a measure of value. Money supplies commodities with the material expression of their values. Money, he says on the first page, serves as a universal measure of value. But, quote, it is not money that renders commodities commensurable, just the contrary. It is because all commodities as values or realized human labor, and therefore commensurable, that their value can be measured by one in the same special commodity. Money as a measure of value is the phenomenal form that must of necessity be assumed by that measure of value which is imminent in commodities, labor time, end quote. So money, it's a phenomenal form of value. 
Because we can't see value in a commodity, we can't see the labor time expressed in it, we need a material representation of it. And again, money doesn't make use values exchangeable. Value, socially necessary labor time, does that. So without value, there's no money. Money itself, he says, has no price. In a sense, it can today with credit and speculation, but Marx doesn't address credit much here, and we will come back to it later when he does. So the money form of commodities is first, quote, a purely ideal or mental form, end quote. Commodities themselves can't communicate their values, so the producers do this by hanging a price tag on something, which is an ideal price to communicate the value to the world outside. And this is an ideal price because it doesn't always correspond to the price that the commodity sells for in the marketplace. But again, money has to have some material basis. It isn't just an imaginary thing we can just stop believing in. This material basis, however, is relative, meaning it can rise or fall. So when the value of gold lowers, like if a new discovery of golds takes place, like the California gold rush, the relative value of all other commodities doesn't change, although their price will if the value of those commodities remains constant. If the value of gold increases, like if there's hoarding going on, then the opposite can happen. Today, now that money is no longer attached to gold, there are more possibilities for inflation and deflation, for altering prices and the value of money, and they can be and have been used as tools for disciplining the working class by decreasing what our money can buy. It's crucial to keep in mind that value is different from price. Mostly in this book, Marx assumes that things trade at their value, which would mean that price and value are the same. But here he notes there's always a difference. The main distinction is that value is social and price is individual. So value is socially necessary labor time, but price is something that can vary on an individual case-by-case -case basis. The difference between price and value is a difference that's crucial to commodity circulation and capitalism. The distinction between price and value is, he writes, quote, inherent in the price form itself. This is no defect, but on the contrary, admirably adapts the price form to a mode of production whose inherent laws impose themselves only as the mean of apparently lawless irregularities that compensate one another, end quote. So there's a quantitative inconsistency here, which is useful for capitalism because it allows prices to fluctuate and therefore allows for flexibility and adaptability. As a social relation, value is incredibly fluid. There are constant fluctuations in socially necessary labor time, and these can't always be discerned or known in the moment. So value is the basis of price, but it's always changing. So price's flexibility helps facilitate these fluctuations. As a price, money helps stabilize the inherent instability of value. The price form is also what allows supply and demand to work. Supply and demand doesn't really have anything to do with value or socially necessary labor time. It has to do with prices, but it also has to do with the extent to which commodities represent use values, and so therefore values. If the distinction between a price and a value becomes pronounced, it can signal either an increase or a decrease in demand. 
Yet there's also a qualitative inconsistency too, as he continues, an inconsistency that can make it so that even though money is the value form of commodities, price no longer expresses value. Objects, he writes, that in themselves are not commodities, such as conscience, honor, etc., are capable of being offered for sale by their holders and of thus acquiring through their price the form of commodities, end quote. Now, there's something important here, which is that once you put a price on commodities and the commodity form is generalized throughout society, as is money, then you can put a price on anything. There's also a possibility for a crisis within all of this, which is exacerbated by speculation. The crisis occurs when the difference between price and value, between the representation of value and the value that it's supposed to represent, becomes extreme. This is really what stock market bubbles are. Prices get so out of sync with actual values that the price no longer expresses the value. So there's a rush to sell the stocks and it can result in an industry-specific crisis or a generalized crisis depending on the extent of investment and the prevalence of the commodity. So the second section is on money as a medium of circulation. This is where we get to CMC. C representing the commodity and M representing money. So CMC is when I have a commodity, I sell it for money, and I use it to buy another commodity. And this is nothing more than an exchange of one product of labor for another. I have a use value, I sell it for money, and use it to purchase another use value. Yet this is a unity of contradictions because there are really two different aspects. There's the C to M movement, and then there's the M to C movement. C to M is riskier. There's no guarantee the value will stay the same, that the labor required yesterday is still required today, or that it is still a use value. On page 73 on the internet, 109 International and 202 Penguin, Marx writes, quote, We see then commodities are in love with money, but the course of true love never did run smooth, end quote. He continues by noting that individuals are freed, quote, from all dependence on the will of producers and that the seeming mutual independence of the individuals is supplemented by a system of general and mutual dependence through or by means of the products, end quote. So again, the system is operating above our heads in ways that no individual will can control. Even though we think that we're independent or autonomous, we're really interdependent under commodity exchange and capitalism. strikes me that when we think about U.S. imperialism today and, and sanctions that they're blocking exchange value. At one point, Derek, you talk about sanctions. What is a sanction? And why are U.S. sanctions so destructive on the rest of the world? So sanctions include a lot of things, right? Including tariffs, which are basically taxes imposed on imported goods. Now, obviously, people or workers want cheaper goods, right? Which corresponds to reduced socially necessary labor time. But if one country can't compete with another in terms of that socially necessary labor time, then they can impose tariffs. And in that case, they're effectively raising the price of the imported good so it's equal to the value and price of the domestic good. Or it can just prevent the country from selling as many goods. They're also used to prevent trade between countries, and so they're a crucial weapon that only the powerful can use. And they're a primary and really a favored tactic of U.S. imperialism. 
By sanctioning a country, the U.S. can seize the country's assets, prevent other countries from trading with them, and this is especially true when they're passed through the United Nations Security Council. The U.S. can also prevent other corporations and other countries from dealing with the sanctioned country in any way. So they say to a company, look, you can trade with us, the U.S., or you can trade with this other country. And in this way, they prevent sanctioned countries from accessing medicine, food, oil, and other basic necessities. And they can be more or less comprehensive, but the goal is always to force regime change and increase the suffering of the targeted country, its government, and its people. So it's basically like a weaponization of commodity and money exchange. So the main thing here is that M to C, on the other hand, is much easier and entails less risk. As the universal equivalent, money is good to purchase anything. It's much easier to buy things than it is to sell them. These two antithetical poles are united in CMC. So the weaver sells his commodity to purchase a Bible. But suppose, Mark says, the seller of the Bible turns the two pounds set free by the weaver into brandy. MC, the concluding phase of CMC, which is linen, money, Bible, is also CM, the first phase of another CMC, Bible, money, brandy. Now, there's a bit of humor here, of course, with somebody selling a Bible to buy brandy. But I also think Marx is pointing to the fact that under capitalism, everything is commodified, even that which many might consider to be sacred. But the point mainly is that CMC isn't one circuit, but a circuit that spawns off into other circuits. He writes that the two metamorphoses constituting the circuit are at the same time two inverse partial metamorphoses of two other commodities. So as a result, direct barter differs from exchange through money. Going to Marx, page 76 online, 114 International and 209 in Penguin, quote, We see here, on the one hand, how the exchange of commodities breaks through all local and personal bounds inseparable from direct barter and develops circulation of the products of social labor. And on the other hand, how it develops a whole network of social relations spontaneous in their growth and entirely beyond the control of the actors, end quote. So again, we have the insistence that this is out of any one individual's control. What he's saying here basically is that, you know, with direct barter, the circuit is closed. It's just C to C, a commodity for a commodity. But once it's CMC, it spawns off into new directions. This is the second mention of exchange breaking personal and local bounds because it's obviously much easier to transport money than it is to transport commodities. And also, you can hold on to money longer than you can hold on to many commodities. So we see how exchange spreads spontaneously, creating networks of circulation that spread and proliferate, thereby spreading and proliferating the value form and putting more forms of human labor into contact with each other. There's a brief polemic against Say's Law two paragraphs later. Say's Law, which was accepted at the time, held that because every purchase is a sale, that every sale is also a purchase. But this is, Mark says, childish, because there's nothing that guarantees the successful completion of one circuit, let alone the other cycles it creates. Further, one can buy without selling or sell without buying. 
So Say's law basically held that there was no possibility for crises because every sale is a purchase and every purchase is a sale. And Marx is saying, well, that's obviously not true because you can, for example, sell something and then hoard the money. Later on in this paragraph, we get another mention of exchange and how it bursts bonds. Quote, circulation bursts through all restrictions as to time, place, and individuals. End quote. Capital is a necessarily expansive and dominating system. And as Marx and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto, it spreads to every nook and cranny of the globe and not always by force and war. Here we're seeing how it happens spontaneously and without the intention of any one individual or group of individuals. Because of this bursting of restrictions, however, there's always an imbalance. And Marx writes, quote, if the interval in time between the two complementary phases of the complete metamorphosis of a commodity become too great, if the split between the sale and the purchase become too pronounced, the intimate connection between them, their oneness, asserts itself by producing a crisis, end quote. This is due to the contradiction between use value and value, between concrete and abstract labor, yet it's only the possibility of crisis. Next, Marx considers how much money is needed in circulation at any given moment, and ultimately it comes down to three factors. There's the total prices of commodities in circulation, the total quantity of commodities, and the velocity of exchange. And these are all variable, right? They can all change. Later on, he'll add credit as an additional factor because if you have credit, you need less money in circulation. He notes that the state arises in part to regulate this. So on page 82 online, 125 international and 221 in Penguin, he writes, quote, coining is the business of the state, end quote. The state functions in part to regulate the availability of money and credit. He also writes that paper money is better than gold because of its fungibility, but it's another level of detachment from value so it can exacerbate crisis or it can help resolve crisis or delay the crisis by printing money, which is easier to do than finding gold. The question of credit arises a page or two later, but disappears quickly. If you're really interested in credit, this is taken up much more in volume three, but it's worth defining credit at this moment. If money is a representation of socially necessary labor time, then credit is a claim on future value or future socially necessary labor time. When I get a credit card and use it, the credit card company is staking an ownership over my future wages and also charging me for it. The third section in the chapter is about money in which Marx will bring together money as a measure of value and as a means of circulation, and I'll also introduce a third function of money, which is money as a means of payment. So he begins with hoarding, which is when someone sells without buying. Quote, the money becomes petrified into a hoard, end quote. Now, exchange is all about the movement and metamorphosis of value, but hoarding causes this to stall. On the other hand, hoarding is necessary for large-scale projects or production processes that are irregular or seasonal or it might be necessary in the case of pandemics, for example, or when a worker has to save for a down payment on a house or a car. Credit can reduce this necessity in many cases. Money is the accumulation of value, which is social. When people hoard money, he says, it is, quote, capable of becoming the private property of any individual, 
Thus, social power becomes the private power of private persons, end quote. And that's page 86 online, 132 International, and 230 in Penguin. So there arises a gold or money fetish whereby gold signifies or really actualizes one's power over others. Value is social, money can be held privately. So we see the way in which capitalism is allowing individuals to take command over circulation and over commodity production and exchange in particular ways. There is, however, a contradiction here, which is that the accumulation of money is quantitatively infinite, but, quote, every actual sum of money is limited in amount and therefore, as a means of purchasing, has only limited efficacy, end quote. This will be fleshed out more in the next part of the book that we'll cover in the next episode. But, you know, ultimately, one, I mean, theoretically, there's no limit to the amount of money that one person can have. There's definitely a limit to what you can purchase with that money. There's also definitely a limit to the actual amount of money that any one individual can possess because there's a limit to the amount of socially necessary labor time or value in circulation. Marx then moves to the contradictory unity of money as a measure of value and introduces a new function as a means of payment. So money as a measure of value, he says, is money of account. Because different products have different production times, someone may have money of account with another, and at some later point, the payment is due. Marx also gives home ownership as an example of when the use value of a commodity is only realized at the end of a long period of time. So rather than pay for the house up front, the final payment comes at a much later date. This is one place where credit and debt come in and how credit and debt arise from simple circulation. Credit and debt predate capitalism and commodity exchange, of course, but capitalism and commodity exchange change debt and credit the way that they work. Credit and debt alter their character under capitalism, and we can clearly see today how the credit-debit relationship is absolutely crucial to capitalism and to subjecting the working class to capital, so much so that the possibility of monetary crises arise. As he writes on 88 Online, 137 International, and 235 Penguin, quote, insofar as actual payments have to be made, money does not serve as a circulating medium, as a mere transient agent in the interchange of products, but as the individual incarnation of social labor, as the independent form of existence of exchange value, as the universal commodity. This contradiction comes to a head in those phases of industrial and commercial crises which are known as monetary crises, end quote. Yet, he says that these crises take place, quote, only where the ever-lengthening chain of payments in an artificial system of settling them has been fully developed, end quote. So if there's no ability to pay, the system can come crashing down in a monetary crisis. We tend to think that money is imaginary until a crisis happens. So when things are booming, there's an increasing investment in stocks, for example. But when the crash comes, all of a sudden, capitalists want their money. As Marx writes on page 88 online, 128 International, and 238 Penguin, quote, On the eve of the crisis, the bourgeois, with the self-sufficiency that springs from intoxicating prosperity, declares money to be a vain imagination. Commodities alone are money. But now the cry is everywhere, money alone is a commodity. 
As the heart pants after fresh water, so pants his soul after money, the only wealth. In a crisis, the antithesis between commodities and their value form, money becomes heightened into an absolute contradiction. This also relates to the contradictory unity of the CMC circuit, where it's much easier to go from M to C than it is from C to M. And so it's better in general to have money or a hoard of money than it is to have a hoard of commodities, particularly in crises. But money of account is needed to take the shape of money as means of payment. So here, hoarding takes on a different function. It's withholding money from circulation in anticipation of a future date of payment. Now, credit can solve this, but it can also exacerbate it. If banks suddenly refuse to lend to a company or a country or a group of people, then it forces that company or group of people or country to turn money from a measure of value into a means of payment. Or if banks make loans to those they know won't be able to pay it back, as they did in the early 2000s, there will come a time when the money of account can't change into means of payment. This is one cause of the 2007-9 economic crisis triggered by the housing market. And for more on this, you should see The Myth of Democracy and the Rule of the Banks by Richard Becker, which is a two-part series available on Liberation School. Next, Marx goes to universal money. Universal money, once gold and silver and now largely the U.S. dollar, is a universal medium of payment that serves to settle international credit debt relations or trade imbalances. So countries also need hoards for internal circulation and also for world circulation. In the last paragraph of this chapter, Marx notes, quote, Countries in which the bourgeois form of production is developed to a certain extent limit the hordes concentrated in the strong rooms of the banks to the minimum required for the proper performance of their peculiar functions, end quote. Because in more developed bourgeois societies, there's a greater demand for growth and accumulation those societies want as much money in circulation, as much value in circulation as possible, and so they want to limit hoarding. Banks usually have to possess a certain ratio of actual money reserves to allow for withdrawals. And in the U.S., this has changed a lot over the past several decades. It's one mechanism that the U.S. state has really to sort of tweak with the economy. In 1982, for example, Congress passed an act which exempted some banks from Federal Reserve limits. And in March 2020, the Federal Reserve drastically changed this. According to the Fed's website, quote, the board reduced reserve requirement ratios to 0% effective March 26, 2020. Now, this action eliminated reserve requirements for many depository institutions or actually all depository institutions, which allows for credit and speculation to flow and exacerbates the contradiction between money as a measure of value and money as a means of payment. So in other words, in order to keep the appearance of growth and circulation happening, it reduced the amount of money that banks had to have in order to lend. So it increased the bank's ability to lend. But of course, at some time, that's going to be due. And at that moment, there will be a crisis. So this brings us to the end of chapter three, comrades. Our next episode will cover part two of the book, chapters four through six where we'll finally get a cursory or introductory look at what capital is. Solidarity. <laughs>